When it comes to the biggest questions that there are about the universe, what is it? Where did it come from? How did it come to be? And where is it going to wind up? What is its ultimate fate? For generations, these were questions that were far beyond the realm of science, but the 20th century brought these questions that were in the realm of philosophy and theology into the realm of science as we suddenly became able to test them. Our physical theories made concrete predictions, and by finding solutions to some of our greatest theories that were out there, we were able to make concrete predictions, go out and observe the universe as it is, and come up with the best answers we can. Yet, as we answer those questions, they reveal deeper and deeper questions. There's a frontier wherever we are, where we have what we know, what's at the edge of that, and what's speculative beyond that. What are the greatest puzzles of modern cosmology? How far have we come? And where are we going next? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased this week to welcome our guest, Dr. Dan Hooper. Dan is a theoretical cosmologist who works at Fermilab and the University of Chicago, and Dan has been in this game for more than 20 years now, producing a large number of papers, a few popular books, including his latest, At the Edge of Time, exploring the mysteries of our universe's first seconds. And although it's about the first seconds, you'd be amazed at how many ramifications there are for that billions and billions of years later. Dan, it's my pleasure to have you here and welcome to the show. Thanks, Ethan. I'm really excited to be on. So if there were one thing, one thing that you would like any listener to this podcast to take away that maybe, maybe not everyone knows this about the universe, but science does, what would you like to impress on any first-time listener or a newcomer to the field of cosmology? If I had to pick just one thing, it would probably be that from the first, say, seconds or minutes after the Big Bang up to the present, we know and understand why our universe has evolved in the way it has. We, we know how its temperature and its size has evolved. We understand how the big transitions took place in the different forms of matter. We know about the kinds of stuff that occupy space, although when I say that, I, I'm saying we have placeholders like words like dark matter, dark energy, which we don't really understand what they are, but we know they were there. So everything from the first seconds and minutes after the Big Bang to the present, we have a remarkably good handle on it. We've measured it many different ways, and we're pretty confident that we understand how our universe played out over that window of time. And that, that I think, is really something that when I was first introduced to the Big Bang, that was one of the things that blew my mind, that you could take, you know, what started off as a very simple set of assumptions, or it seems simple now, which is that Einstein's general relativity is the theory of gravity that describes our universe, that when you look out at the universe on the largest cosmic scales, roughly it looks like it's roughly even, which is to say it's it's the same on average on scales of tens of billions of light years. It's the same at all locations and in all directions. You start with that and immediately you wind up with this tremendously powerful prediction that on one hand you have either an expanding or contracting universe, and on the other hand, you have all of the matter and energy present within that universe, and that one of them, if you know one of them, you can determine the other one. So when we go out and we measure the universe, Everything else follows from that. And it's kind of remarkable to me that this was something that was first put together in the 1920s. And here we are almost a full century later, and that is still the core of this science of modern cosmology. Yeah, I mean, as early as the 1920s, people were using Einstein's equations to basically deduce the right history of our universe. Now, they didn't know at that time whether our universe would be expanding or contracting, but they knew it had to change. They knew that space, the space that makes up our universe could not be static. And if it was expanding, then if you run those equations backward, you can find that Einstein's theory predicts 
their universe started in a hot and dense state, what would eventually be called the Big Bang. I love that. I love that because, you know, we think about an expanding universe um, and you do a great job, you know, on the difference between an expansion and an explosion. My my favorite analogy for that is one you didn't happen to use, which is to imagine a a loaf of bread, of raisin bread before you bake it. Before you bake it, where you have uh, just a big ball of dough. I like to imagine the ball of dough on the International Space Station, just with raisins everywhere. And <laughs> you let this, you let this ball of dough start to leaven, and the dough is the fabric of space, and the individual raisins are the galaxies and clusters of galaxies, these things that are gravitationally bound together in the universe. Wherever you are, you can look at another nearby raisin, and you can say, okay, if it's nearby, then as the dough leavens, I'll see this raisin recede from me. But if you look at a raisin all the way out near the edge of the dough and you're towards the center, you're going to see that there's more dough in there to leaven between you and this distant object. And what's going to happen? It's going to appear farther and farther away from you. I think in your book, you use the analogy of an expanding Earth, and you imagine the distances between Chicago, Detroit, and New York, and any other places you want. And even though Chicago and Detroit, if you expanded the Earth from inside, on the surface of it, Chicago and Detroit will appear to move farther and farther apart as time goes on, but Chicago and New York, because they start farther away, will appear to move farther apart at a much, much faster rate. Yeah, I like both of those analogies, the the expanding raisin bread and the expanding uh, surface of the earth. Um, there is one limitation that they both have. Um, and, and when I've, I've taught, I've used both of these. And when I've taught like intro, intro cosmology courses, I've used both of these analogies enough times to know that one way in which they fail is people naturally hear those analogies and then ask the question, what is space expanding into? What is the raisin bread expanding into? What is the surface of the earth in my analogy expanding into? And there's no good answer to that in general relativity. Space can get bigger. It can expand without it expanding into anything. And that, to me, is one of the coolest aspects of this and probably one of the hardest to wrap your head around if you're not used to these ideas. I think so. It took me definitely a while to start to wrap my head around these ideas. And my the reason I like that is because I I think the dough itself is space, that, that it's a three-dimensional ball of dough and we live in three dimensions of space. And you just have to divorce yourself from the idea that this dough needs to be a physical thing, that this dough is really like it's just a mathematical object and it can expand or contract. It doesn't expand into anything and it doesn't contract out of anything. But, but what I think about is, you know, if you actually run these equations all the way back and say, okay, the universe is expanding and cooling today, right? And cooling because it's not just like when you have matter particles and you say, okay, I got a certain number of particles in a certain volume. I expand the volume and the mass stays the same and the number of particles stays the same and the density goes down. When you talk about radiation, which is what we get our temperature from, that actually is dependent on its wavelength. Like if you hold your hands a certain distance apart, and you imagine that you have one wavelength in there where it starts at a node and it goes up, it has a peak and goes down through the node again and comes and has a trough and then comes up to its starting point and say that's a wavelength. As your universe expands, your hands move farther apart and your wavelength stretches. If you go back in time then, that's like running the clock backwards on expansion or contraction. And if you contract that universe, you're going to see actually that wavelength is smaller and smaller wavelength is higher energy and higher frequency. And that means hotter temperatures. So you go back and back and back and back and you can actually go all the way back to, if you want to go mathematically, you can go as far as you want to this arbitrarily hot and dense state. In general relativity, that's where for generations people thought the universe originated from, that that's where the universe was born. And I think that's where it's fair to say the idea of what we now call the Big Bang first came from. Yeah, so the, 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 the trick – there's a trick about the phrase the Big Bang, and I, I know you've written about this, but different people use that phrase to mean different things. 
some people mean really that t equals zero point where if you run those equations you were just mentioning backwards all the way you get to infinite density infinite temperature but other people just mean kind of the hot and dense state of the first you know i don't know pick your unit of time second minute billionth of a second that the universe started in and i i'm, I'm fine with using either of those depending on the context uh, but though that's a sort of range of ideas that we mean when we say Big Bang. Right. But I think this is interesting because it does have two meanings. And now, um, you know, if you had said meaning one or meaning two, if you had said that back in the 40s or the 50s, people would have said, yeah, that's the same thing. This is th you're just splitting hairs about which which particular instant do you mean? Do you mean this one moment in time or do you mean this, you know, set of conditions that occurs early on? And I think you do a very interesting job of having this discussion about how these two things may not necessarily be the same anymore. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, especially once inflation got built into our conventional notion of the early universe, that can really separate that hot and dense state that people call the Big Bang from any t equals zero starting point. Um, inflation could have gone on for a very, very long time before it kind of spawned off our universe um, and in, in, in that case, um, we don't really know how, how much time passed uh, between that t equals zero point, assuming it did take place in what we call the hot, dense state of the Big Bang. Yeah, and this, this for me is one of, the, one of the hardest points it was when I was learning about it to wrap my head around is that, you know, you can say, okay, let's look at the conditions that the universe needed to begin with at the early stage of that of that second de definition of the hot big bang of the one that it's just this set of conditions where the universe is hot and dense and expanding and cooling and full of matter and energy and antiparticles and anything that you can make and by the way uh, for those of you listening Dan's book has a wonderful discussion about about exactly this era but if you start asking questions about what was this early hot dense state like, you start running into some puzzles. You have you have the puzzle of why when we look 46 billion light years to the edge of the visible universe in one direction and then we turn around 180 degrees and we look 46 billion light years in the other direction, in the opposite direction, we know that these two regions of space have never had time because of the way expansion works to communicate or exchange information or thermalize with one another. And yet when we look in these different directions, we see that not only those two regions, but that any region we can point to in space early on had the same exact temperature to about one part in 30,000. It's, it's an incredible and, you know, in the context of the, oh, we started from a singularity, Big Bang, it has no explanation. I talked to you about how we have this balance in, you know, what you call the, we call them the Friedman equations now, but this is what you get when you say the universe is the same in all directions and the same everywhere and expanding is that you have on one side the expansion rate of the universe and on the other side all the matter and energy, all the different forms of energy present in the universe one of those forms of energy is spatial curvature, is the amount of curvature intrinsic to space. You talk about how if I take a triangle and I put a triangle down on a flat two-dimensional piece of paper, we normally think, oh yeah, all those angles, they're going to add up to 180 degrees. But that's only if your paper isn't curved. If I were to take that same piece of paper and I were to cut like a slice of it out, like if I were to take a circular piece of paper and to cut like a slice of pizza out of it, and then I were to tape that paper together and draw a triangle on that that included the point that I had, you know, taped together, uh, I would find that my angles aren't 180 degrees. I would find those angles add up to more than 180 degrees. And oddly enough, if I took that slice of pizza and I cut a hole in another circle of paper and I inserted that slice of pizza in there, now I'd have a surface of negative curvature, which means if I drew the triangle on that, my angles would add up to less than 180 degrees. And yet, somehow, in our universe, 
any triangle you can draw on any cosmic scales, even the largest ones, all the angles always add up to 180 degrees, which means that in the earliest stages of the hot Big Bang, that expansion rate initially, and all that matter and energy, they had to balance each other to something like 20 significant digits, and only in the 21st significant digits do you run up to the observational limits of what we have today. There are other puzzles too, like the monopole problem of, you know, if you extrapolate all the way back to arbitrarily hot and dense temperatures, we believe there should be more to the universe than just the standard model of particles that we have today. Like, are we creating magnetic monopoles? Are we creating other types of high-energy relics? And if so, why don't they exist in the universe today? These were some puzzles that are just totally unexplained as far as the normal hot Big Bang goes if you go back to an arbitrarily hot, dense state. People have heard the version of inflation from Ethan Siegel, who listened to this podcast many times, and... If it's all right with you, I'd like you to give them the Dan Hooper version, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so, yeah, in the 70s, the two problems, you or I guess three problems you just described, uh, started to become apparent to a lot of cosmologists. Um, this is around the time that the Big Bang was becoming, you know, mainstream accepted science. Uh, the cosmic microwave background had been studied and looked enough like it was predicted to to convince most people that most people studying this problem that the, the something like the Big Bang happened. Uh, but yeah, the universe was weirdly uncurbed or flat. The universe was weirdly uniform. I think that's the biggest of the three problems personally. And then if something like these monopoles exist and a lot of theorists thought they should or think they should, um, then our universe should be filled with those. And yet it's not. So um, in 1980, this, uh, this uh, particle physicist, theoretical particle physicist named Alan Guth suggested that you could solve these problems if – the, there was a stage very, very shortly after the Big Bang where uh, the universe expanded, not in the sort of steady way that it normally does where space expands, but it slows down over time. But instead, something where it exponentially grew in a, a very small fraction of a second. In particular, if it, in, it, we, the, our best estimate is that this went on for something like 10 to the minus 32 seconds. And in that tiny, tiny sliver of a, a moment, uh, volume of space grew by a power of uh, 10 to the 75. So enormous burst of expansion right after the Big Bang. If that were to have happened, um, then you would, just like blowing up a balloon makes its surface flatter, um, you would expect space to have become flat instead of curved. And whereas uh, we're confused by how uniform our universe seems to be, if you take a little tiny bit of space and then stretch it into something bigger than our universe, suddenly that gives us an explanation for how it got to be so uniform. And then thirdly, any of those unwanted relics like monopoles you mentioned, those would be diluted by the expansion of space in such a way to explain why there are essentially none in our universe today. So all three problems kind of get uh, addressed. It's uh, killing multiple birds with one stone. And, and, and I think at the time, it's fair to say, like in the 80s, there was lots of reason to be skeptical of this idea. After all, we didn't really have any super compelling evidence that happened. Uh, but fortunately, they made some fairly specific uh, predictions. Um, and they said if inflation happened, then, you know, depending on the details of the model, but in most models, you should expect the cosmic microwave background to have some rather specific features. Um, don't worry too much about what these words mean, but they said things like the temperature variation should be approximately scale invariant and uh, and they should be adiabatic and, and mostly non-Gaussian. Or, uh, both, mostly Gaussian, mostly Gaussian, but I know what you mean. Most Mostly Gaussian. And lo and behold, uh, in the decades that followed, we got good at measuring these things. And uh, starting in the, in the early 90s and then into 2000 and, and all the way to the present. And th these predictions have just panned out. And as a result, most cosmologists today are reasonably confident that inflation or something like it took place. There are, there are uh, opponents to inflation who aren't convinced by that evidence, but they're definitely in the minority now. Um, and I think that's fair that the evidence really has fallen on the side of inflation over the last uh, several, few decades. 
Yeah, and I I think you point out very justifiably that there were many uh, objections to inflation that came out during the 80s and early 90s. And you mentioned in the early 90s, like most of them were silenced. And the reason most of them were silenced is because we had our first successful mission, the Kobe mission, that could actually start to put inflation's predictions to the test, that it started measuring these fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background and determining, oh, they did start out very, very close to scale invariant. And now we know that not only are they almost perfectly scale invariant, but they're not quite perfectly scale invariant. And the amount that they're not perfectly scale invariant is extremely consistent with what most models of inflation predict, which I find very compelling. And we know, like you said, yes, you know, you would say that the fluctuations should be Gaussian in inflation, which is really just, I like to think of a bell curve because most people know what a bell curve is. And it's basically like, okay, you say the average temperature is going to be this, but then you're going to have some regions where it's a little hotter or a little denser and some reasons where it's a little colder or a little under dense. And I've got those backwards because cold goes with overdense right. and hot goes with underdense but yeah, very counterintuitive but yeah but yeah but but you are probably the only listener who would even catch me on that and here I go outing myself to everyone it's fine it's fine um but you go ahead and you start making all of these detailed observations and seeing actually it looks really gaussian and then we have the constraints on are they adiabatic or are they the other option which is isothermal and the latest constraints say that it's over 98% adiabatic and at most, it's about one point something percent isothermal, but that's really consistent with 100% adiabatic like we expect. So you start saying, okay, how many tests are there in total? And I believe I've managed to find about six of them. Um, one of them has not yet been tested. One of them has seen to be consistent with inflation, but hasn't been overly, you know, we, we haven't reached the level to say, is it really exactly what inflation predicts? But the other four are bang on. Inflation predicts them. Other ideas predict other things. Um, and it's not cosmic strings. And it's not, it's not many of these alternatives. It's inflation. I think that's really good. What I wanted you to maybe go into a little more detail on, and maybe maybe this is worth talking about, is when we talk about inflation, you said one thing at the very beginning which is that we know inflation you know, went on for at least a certain amount of time, but it could have gone on for much, much, much longer. And then you said, okay, if you say inflation goes on for 10 to the minus 32 seconds, um, you know, it's enough to take something that's, you know, and I'll just, I'll just throw in some words that people might know. You can take something that's smaller than the Planck scale. This is the scale at which physics ceases to make sense as far as quantum field theory and general relativity go. You could take something as small as the Planck scale, 10 to the minus 35 meters in size. And in that 10 to the minus 32 seconds, when inflation occurs, it becomes even bigger than the full size of the observable universe today. It would be like saying, I'm going to take the planet Earth and I'm going to shrink it down to this minuscule size, uh, smaller than, you know, smaller than the eye can see, like the size of a single atom. And now I'm going to inflate the Earth so that it becomes the size of the Earth. And I'm going to draw an imaginary fence line around my backyard just around my backyard, and that's all I have access to. What's What am I going to say? Well, I'm going to say, if I had, you know, all the electrons and protons and neutrons in my atom, and I look at that little fenced area I have, I'm probably not going to have any protons, neutrons, or electrons in that in my own backyard. At most, I'll have one. I'm not going to be able to tell that the Earth is curved from my point in my backyard because the curvature of the Earth is not really visible on the scale of my tiny, tiny, tiny backyard, which is maybe a few hundred feet at most in even the long direction. How am I possibly going to see that the curved Earth, which is, you know, 6,000 kilometers in radius, I I won't be able to see it. Um, And I'm going to, you know, say, oh, yeah, like the part of my 
backyard over here and the part of my backyard over there, they, they all have roughly the same properties. And of course they do because they came from that same atom. They came from that same origin point. I feel like that's what the theory of inflation says. But I also feel like, what if inflation didn't go on for 10 to the minus 32 seconds? What if it went on for a nanosecond, or a whole second, or a year, or a billion years, or 10 to the 100 years? I'm always, um, I don't know whether to say disheartened, or excited, or I would say my mind is blown by the fact that if you asked what would we see as the difference between a universe that had inflation happen for 10 to the minus 32 seconds and that ended in a big bang, or a universe that had inflation happen for 10 to the 100 years and then ended in a big bang, there are no observables that I can point to that have any difference in our universe today. Yeah, I think that's approximately right. I mean, there there might be some futuristic measurements you could make that would teach you about the shape of the the inflationary potential or something that would tell you whether inflation was eternal or not, to use the, the that phrase. But but I, it would be a very difficult thing to do. And, and at this point, it's super uh, – very much an open question. I can still remember when I first heard about this idea. Um, I was at this uh, – summer school for advanced grad students and Sean Carroll was giving lectures on cosmology. And in, in on the fourth day, the final day of his lectures, he talked about inflation and he showed that kind of generically inflationary theories tend to go on forever. Once you start inflating a patch of space, um, although bits and pieces of that space stop inflating, the expansion is so fast that it creates new space faster than it loses inflating space. So that means every time a little bit of space stops inflating, you get a new like causal patch of space that is, in, in all intents and purposes, basically a new universe. So it turns out that most versions of inflation you can write down just go on forever. The inflation itself, the expansion never stops. Instead, it just proceeds to generate more and more of these pocket universes, these places that uh, look just like our universe might, uh, but they're only one of some extremely large number of physical realities out there. Um, this multiverse naturally gets populated uh, according to these conventional theories of inflation. Yeah, I I think this is fascinating, and I didn't learn it from Sean Carroll. My first exposure to eternal inflation uh, came when Eric Weinberg gave a talk at my graduate school, and you know this is Eric Weinberg of the Coleman Weinberg potential, and yeah. he made he made a fairly similar argument, uh, but I. I don't think I fully understood it because my response was not the same as yours. Mine was, oh, I, I, is that really right? Let me go and check. So I started writing all these computer programs to simulate how inflation would work. And I was immediately, I had my mind blown because what I started to see is, okay, there are all these inflationary potentials you can concoct, you can dream up, you can imagine, um, and you can say, okay, I'm going to put my ball wherever it is on the top of this hill, anywhere I want on the potential, and I can see how much inflation do I get before the ball rolls down into the bottom of the hill and inflation ends. And what you find is that there are many potentials that won't work. They won't give you enough inflation to give you the, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 um, e-folds of inflation you need to make the universe look the way it does. The universe doesn't inflate enough unless you have the right potential. But then if you make a place where either the universe has the right potential or the ball starts in the right spot on the potential, you start to find that this, this place where inflation happens in a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, this is going to become 99.9999, and until you get tired of writing nines, percent of all the available volume in the universe. So the first thing it taught me is if you have a region of space in the early universe where inflation begins, that is 
almost everything that will ever come out of it. The fact that we live in a region of space where it looks like inflation happened is really strong evidence to me that inflation happened almost everywhere. The second thing that blew my mind was learning that when inflation comes to an end, the region of space that will become a universe in that particular region where inflation ends, that is way larger in almost any scenario you can concoct than what we call our observable universe, which should right. tell us that the more you allow time to go on and on and on, and more and more of the universe becomes visible to us as the light from galaxies that are too far away to be seen right now finally arrives, we don't expect that moment to ever end. We expect that there will always be more and more galaxies to be revealed to us up until the limits of what dark energy ever allows to become visible to us. But that that most baffling thing to me is when you start adding quantum physics into the equation and quantum physics basically says, although it says a lot of things, one of the things it says is, you know, any particle, any field, anything you can cook up is inherently quantum in nature, which means if you say it has this value, that value is going to spread out as time evolves. So you can say, okay, um, I'm imagining that I'm a ball at the top of the hill, and at some point I'll slowly roll down the hill and eventually I'll roll all the way down the hill into a valley. But if I'm a quantum field, then I can say, okay, my ball is actually, it's like it's splitting into a, a wave packet that's spreading out. And some parts of that wave packet are going to roll down the hill. And some parts of that wave packet are going to stay at the top of the hill. And some parts of that wave packet that actually start to roll down the hill are actually going to, you know, quantumly fluctuate back up the hill. And then I started to see the same thing that you described, that let's say I start with a little cube, a little one-by-one-by-one one one cube, and after a certain amount of time, it inflates, so it expands and becomes a two-by-two-by-two by two by two cube. That's eight times as big. If you start asking how likely is inflation to end in any of these regions, if you want inflation to actually work and give you a universe that gets stretched flat and has the same properties anywhere and has no monopoles in it? The answer is you kind of need at least four, that inflation can end at any given time step in at most half of these regions. So that means if I have it end in four of these cubes, I get four regions that have big bangs, but then the other four will keep inflating. And instead of a one by one cube, I'm going to wind up with four two by two by two cubes. And you can keep doing this, taking steps forward and forward and forward. And you'll find that no matter when inflation ends in a region of space, there are more regions of space that continue to inflate as you go on, which tells us that our universe beginning 13.8 billion years ago with the end of inflation and the start of what we call the hot big bang, that that probably didn't happen everywhere and that there are other regions of space far beyond our own universe where space is still inflating and where new universes and new big bangs are currently being born all the time. Yeah, I share that view entirely. Um, now, there are any number of things we could learn about the laws of physics between now and uh, you know, when we confirm or, or refute this idea, but based on what we know right now, that seems to be the logical outcome. That seems to be more or less inevitable. Yeah. And so when we talk about the first seconds of the universe, we're really talking about, you know, what we're doing is we're taking the Big Bang, we're extrapolating back and back and back and back to as far as we can go, where the universe is full of matter and antimatter and particles and antiparticles and bosons and radiation and, and, and energy inherent to space itself and anything else you can put in there. And then a little bit before that, we can extrapolate back to this tiny, tiny 10 to the minus 30 something fraction of a second where inflation occurred. And then before that, there are a lot of different ideas, but we don't know. Did inflation last 
only for that tiny fraction of second and then there was something else before that, a non-inflationary state, was inflation eternal to the past? And was it something that actually this is the state that the universe was always in and the fact that it ended where we are is just a an interesting thing that happened where we happen to be? Or did it actually only go on for that tiny amount of time and did it begin from a singularity after all? Did it begin from that infinitely hot, infinitely dense point that that inflation maybe maybe it needs? Some theorems said it do. Others argue that those theorems don't apply and I find both arguments pretty good. Um, I think that this is still a fascinating question that the more we learn about how the universe began, the more we recognize that, you know what, the answers to this question from a physical point of view, it might not even be encoded in the information present within our universe. Yeah, not not only is it an amazingly uh, exciting question to be asking, but it's one that's probably about as difficult to answer or imagine answering as any question I can come up with. It would, it, it's the, like you said, not the information that you would want to have, the kind of data you'd want to be able to mine from our universe to shed light on this question just might not be there. It might be in, in space that's entirely causally disconnected from our own. And I just simply can't imagine doing a laboratory experiment that allows us to learn what the laws of physics were like at the kind of temperatures and densities um, of inflation or or even prior to that or approaching the singularity if there was one. So when people talk about what, what the universe was like before inflation or even during inflation, I tend to you know put a lot of skepticism on any answer. Um, I think it's perfectly fine to speculate, and that's exciting, and sometimes speculation leads – to real progress, um, but I think anything that that anyone says about the era before inflation should be taken with a healthy dose of salt. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, I also think it's really interesting to talk to you. Um, you know, we've spoken before, of course, but but sure. I think when I speak to you. Um, I get a different version of Dan Hooper than I would have gotten if all I had done was read Dan Hooper's scientific papers. Because <laughs> when I read Dan Hooper's scientific papers, I, I see, oh, Dan is considering this exotic scenario and trying to say, okay, if this exotic scenario is true, what would come of that? And if this other exotic scenario is true, what, what could we observe? How would that affect the universe? What could this be? Or if we see... Here's an interesting signal that we didn't expect. What are some of the mundane or, you know, no new physics, just there's some astrophysical objects out there that are producing it that we haven't fully predicted, right? Um, and then you say, okay, but what if it's what if it's annihilating dark matter? What if it's decaying dark energy? What if it's this interaction between this one type of field that may exist and this other type of field that might exist? In research... Uh, I think what you do is pretty speculative, and then to hear you talk about it, it's almost like you don't have any problem considering a far-fetched idea very intricately and then turning around and saying, okay, but it's not like I believe in this. Um, <laughs> I think this is something that that many of us, especially many lay people, struggle with. Can you talk a little bit about why this is important for a theoretical physicist? So there's there are different levels of speculation, um, and 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 uh, like you said, a lot of my papers, not all of them, but a lot of them, um, I'm ex I'm considering some very specific uh, theory or, or, or framework, um, and and I probably will admit the odds that that's really realized in nature are small. That's just because there is a mind-bogglingly large number of possibilities. And I've been considering one of them. And until there's data in support of that possibility, it probably isn't true. But by exploring as many of those as you can and looking for commonalities and, and trying to think of ways to test or prove or disprove or falsify or, or support any of these sorts of theories, you slowly make your way towards the truth. Um, so, for example, I'm perfectly happy to look at the gamma rays that are coming from the center of the Milky Way and say, well, 
that looks a lot like what I naively expected dark matter to produce. So let me write a bunch of papers about what kind of dark matter models uh, could do that, knowing very well that any particular model I'll write down is probably not the right answer. But it helps me to re recognize what kind of features a model that could explain that data might have, try to figure out which ones won't do the pro won't solve the problem, and slowly kind of moving toward the right answer. One thing that I don't tend to do in my papers is you know speculate about kinds of physics that I can't think of any way to put to the test. If I can't think of a plausible near to medium term future experiment that somebody could do to test the theory I'm talking about, I probably won't work on that in my professional life. I will write a chapter in my book about it. I'm happy to talk about, you know, the universe at the Planck time uh, because I think it's cool and interesting. But as a scientist, as a practicing researching scientist, I just don't have much to say about that. Um, anything I would have to say would, would be, um, pretty uh you know metaphysics-y it would be uh the sort of thing that i wouldn't know how to apply the scientific method to so i i think it's important to keep an open mind but then to focus that open mind in the areas where we think we can make progress through observation and experimentation and i'd like to uh i'd like to point out because thank you i think that's a great answer and i think that's a great approach there are a lot of times throughout, you know, history, particularly recent history, like 20th century history, where we can take a look at, you know, oh, uh, I can calculate that this effect should exist, but it's it's going to be really difficult to detect and it's going to be confounded by all these other factors. And, and I don't know, but I'm still going to write about it because if this physics is right and we think it is or this physics is right and something supports that it is, then this is something that we might see and we might be able someday to go and look for it. There are a lot of effects like that that have suddenly fallen within the realm of observation and once they have, you can put them to the test and you can learn something about the universe that decades earlier it was only, well, this is, this is in the realm of the purely theoretical. Yeah, I can think of a lot of things that, you know, when, when they were written about for the first time, they seemed like super futuristic. But then, you know, 20 or 30 years later, and we're doing real experiments, you know, you know, measuring the thing that they wrote about. Um, and, and oftentimes those authors of those original papers could not have foreseen the technology that it would take to do that. Um, but there are other things um, I'm thinking about Planck scale physics or something now that um, I don't think in 20 or 30 years we'll be able to shed much light on. Um, so, you know, th there there has to be at least a conceivable way to test it for me to spend my my professional time actively thinking about it. I think that's I think that's fair and and for what it's worth you know from whatever anyone thinks I think um is worth anything uh I think that you take a a pretty solid approach for for is it okay if I embarrass you a little bit and let people know that uh within the field you you have the informal nickname of Super Hooper because of You know I don't know that I knew that. Oh wow. Maybe no one tells me these things. So you may have <laughs> just uh just uh inform me of something that's that's cool though yeah i, I, I like that stuff yeah uh that dan dan hooper for apparently now uh this is his first time hearing it but that was how i was first introduced to dan hooper there were there were two things that first introduced me one was he wrote a paper and i went and looked it up and i asked someone about it and they were like oh you mean super hooper over in wisconsin he he writes a whole bunch of papers and it's like he he churns them out and they're all good and he churns them out like super fast and i was like huh interesting let me go to his web page so i went to his web page and at the time dan you had a uh, a web page that said dan hooper's above average web page and i learned unfortunately pretty quickly that if you open that web page in any browser other than the mac default browser it would crash your browser um huh. and that was that was interesting too to me but for a t and you know more like a giggle reason but but yeah um yeah super hooper there you go I've never been very uh, web page savvy. Uh, <laughs> my web page now is pretty uh, pretty elementary. Well, that's okay. For all the blogs I have, I I don't even have one right now. I don't even have a <laughs> static web page that people could find me at. Um, so 
I really enjoyed this book and your tour through the universe. And for those of you wondering, yeah, there is a big discussion in there about this idea of dark matter annihilating in the galactic center. And I think this is this is fun enough that um, would you be willing to go into a little bit of detail about this from both the theoretical and the observational point of view? Sure. So for a really long time, you know, longer than you or I have been, physicists, people have speculated that dark matter particles, when they're in environments with a lot of dark matter particles, might destroy each other or annihilate each other in, at a rate that could produce observable quantities of high energy particles, in particular gamma rays, you know, high energy photons. So it turns out that the nearest by dense region of dark matter, we think, is the center of the Milky Way. And if you do kind of a naive estimate for what you would expect, it turns out that the kind of current generations of gamma ray telescopes uh, could be sensitive to this in a certain range of, of dark matter models. So with that in mind, about 10 years ago, um, I downloaded the newly made available public data from the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. This is a, you know, a satellite that, that's been in, in orbit now for a little, you know, a little over 11 years, I think. And uh, it points across the whole sky at different, different points. And, and, it, and when gamma rays hits it, it records and it measures their direction they're coming from and, and their energy, things like that. So I was working with this uh, physicist, Lisa Goodenough, who was a student at NYU at the time. And the two of us downloaded these data, this data and processed it and pointed you know, looked at the data in the direction of the Galactic Center and, and tried to figure out what we could make of it. And to our surprise, there was this big, bright blob of gamma rays that we couldn't easily explain. And that blob had roughly the characteristics that dark matter should have, or the, the, the products of dark matter annihilation should have. So we wrote a paper. Um, we tried to be kind of conservative in it. We said, you know, a possible signal of annihilating dark matter. And we even said in the abstract, oh, this could be other things too, but it's kind of kind of interesting how much this looks like dark matter. That paper was not well received. Um, you know, the the kind of professional gamma ray community uh, didn't didn't think we had a convincing argument, and, and and some people in the Fermi team said things like, "Well, we've checked the data; we don't find that the blob's there, and this is clearly wrong." And I was kind of humbled by that experience. But then, uh, you know, as the data accumulated, I decided to look again with more data and. When we did and we tried a bunch of new analysis techniques and Lisa and I found not only is the signal there, but it passed all of our tests and we couldn't make it go away. And so we wrote another paper and uh, this time we were a little less conservative about the language. We're getting more confident. And again, the paper fell totally flat. No one believed us and, and it was frustrating. But then after that, a couple of other groups started to get in the game and, and Tim Linden and I wrote another paper um, doing some other tests, finding that in fact that excess was there and, and it looked like the, what you'd expect from annihilating dark matter particles. And then there were, was a group at UC Irvine and a group in New Zealand and they found the same thing. And then there was a paper that did, you know, did a lot to convince the community the signal was real. It involved Tracy Slatcher and, and Doug Finkbeiner um, and, 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 and some of their, their students and Tim Linden and I. And uh, yeah, it was very clear from that paper, at least in my mind and in, in mind of a lot of the community members, that this access was real. Um, and shortly after that, the Fermi team kind of changed their mind and acknowledged that it was real. They had a press release and started writing papers of their own about it. And then there was an explosion of interest and everybody got really excited. People thought that maybe this was finally the discovery of dark matter particles. But there was another possibility um, one that we had been writing about the whole time, um, kind of alongside the dark matter interpretation, and that that there in that interpretation is that there could, instead of dark matter particles, be maybe tens of thousands of things called millisecond pulsars all crammed in the in the region around the galactic center, and that the gamma rays from these astrophysical objects could be mimicking a dark matter-like signal. And um, I think I say in the book that I, there's nothing I hate more than pulsars because they keep ruining my perfectly good searches for dark matter. Um, but but uh, that was always considered a possibility, but you know, on kind of co-equal grounds to dark matter and to, until two papers got published in 2015 that 
claim to find evidence that the gamma rays that make up the excess are kind of clumpy. They come in little groups, and that would suggest they come from things like pulsars as opposed to something smoothly distributed like dark matter. And in the kind of interest in dark matter as an explanation for this kind of fell out fell out at that point. That became a, a much less studied topic. But in the last year, dark matter has kind of made a resurgence. Uh, a nice paper by Tracy Slatcher and Rebecca Lean showed that at least one of these techniques that were used back in 2015 wasn't robust and that, in fact, the, the data doesn't contain any evidence for pulsars or other point sources. Um, and then there's another group, um, including some people at Fermilab, who are finding similar things uh, using what they call a wavelet technique. But, but basically the answer is now whatever you thought about this signal prior to 2015 is what you should think about it now. Um, dark matter and pulsars are both potentially viable interpretations, um, but one is the data doesn't favor one over the other. And I, for one, think it's not particularly unlikely that we really are looking at the first discovery of dark matter particles here. Um, but we're going to need more data to confirm that, to really convince the community that that's the case. And I think that's the right approach, too, because I, I don't think anyone wants to draw a an a monumental conclusion like dark matter exists or we found a new fundamental particle only to later have to backtrack from that when we have better data and discover actually it might be it might be something entirely different um, because there are a lot of what I'll call anomalies out there or new observations that we didn't necessarily expect to see what we wound up seeing, um, but that have multiple possible explanations. For example, the uh, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer experiment mm. aboard the International Space Station, they see an excess of positrons and they see four sigma evidence that there's a there's a rise and a peak in the distribution and then all of a sudden at this energy threshold, right at the limit of their energy threshold that they can measure, uh, it looks like there's a cutoff. It looks like there's a turnoff. So does that mean we're seeing a new particle? Are we seeing evidence of dark matter decaying or annihilating? into electron-positron pairs. This is this is something, like you said, about the Fermi signal, that this is, it's not controversial anymore that this signal exists. What is controversial is what's the cause of this signal. Is it the exotic, there's a new particle, maybe there's dark matter, something is annihilating, giving off energy, making standard model particles, and we don't know what it is, or is this just, oh, there's some astrophysics stuff out there that, you know, pulsars, black holes, collapsars, uh, supernovae, extragalactic sources, stuff within our galaxy, whatever it is, that's actually causing this instead. Um, and this is, for me, like the motivation of why we do science, because the more you look, the more mysteries you find, the more you theorize based on what's known or what could be, the more you find that that interface between what's known and what's expected and what could be out there and we aren't sure. And, and this to me is the most interesting part of the scientific frontier is just going one step over the boundary from the known into the unknown. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And what I think is important about any of these situations, any of these uh, anomalies, as you call them, is uh, finding the ways forward, finding the ways to confirm uh, or, or refute any hypothesis you might have for what generates the anomaly. So t take the AMS um, uh, positron excess you talk about. Um, so any dark matter scenario you can think of that could generate those positrons will invariably make some things like gamma rays and other sorts of particles. We can look for those and see if a consistent picture emerges. On the other hand, if, for example, nearby pulsars generate those positrons, then, then you should be able to see certain features of those pulsars that would strengthen that interpretation. So I think the important thing is, is trying to figure out what all the lists of possibilities are, at least as many as you can think of, and figure out what their observational consequences are and go out and test those observational consequences to the greatest ability of your technology, and ultimately you find what the right answer is that way.
And this is really remarkable because that story you tell about looking at all these different observable signals and all this different evidence, this is this is how we arrived at the picture of the universe that we have today. You know, people think about like, oh, the universe can't be that just the 5% of stuff that's the standard model particles. That can't just be 5%. Surely all the other stuff is wrong. But we have like dozens of lines of independent evidence, completely independent observations that that don't matter for the other ones that all demonstrate like dark matter is real and it exists in roughly a five to one ratio with normal matter and dark energy is real and is about two thirds of the modern energy content of the universe. And the disagreements that people are talking about in these observations, these are at the like one or two percent level or, you know, in the case of the controversy over the Hubble constant, at most like at the 9% level. But this is in yep. the 1 to, per, to 10% level category. This is not saying like, oh, we could just throw it all out. If you throw out dark matter, you can't explain the overwhelming majority of observations we've taken in the universe. If you throw out dark energy, the overwhelming majority of observations in the universe don't make sense. It's really not controversial to me that these things exist. What is controversial is what they are. And I love that you're right on the frontiers of trying to find what are the tests we can perform, what are the measurements we can make that can actually allow us to go from this current state we're in, where we have this unexplained observation and we're speculating as to what it could be, to actually knowing whether it's this cause or that cause up to whatever confounding factor of unknown unknowns might be out there. Yeah, and I don't think that it's going to take all that long to resolve these questions. Uh, you know, our, uh, these very high energy measurements of pulsars, I think, are going to tell us, uh, give us an answer, a definitive answer to the MS positron excess, you know, right basically now. And when it comes to the Fermi Galactic Center excess, um, I think as we discover more dwarf galaxies uh, with this uh, telescope called LSST, that will provide a way to test that. Um, and then on the other way, we can use deep radio surveys of the galactic center to see if those pulsars that are hypothesized are really there or not. I think in the, you know, a number of years from now, not that many years from now, we'll be able to resolve this question through one or more of those means. I think that's wonderful. But just to make you give a perspective on something that isn't likely to be resolved. One of the lines you put in your book that's kind of stuck with me, and I might not remember it exactly, but I, it's going to be close, is that you said the problem with cosmology is that we only have one universe to study. Uh, <laughs> can, you, can you go into a little bit of detail as to why only having this one universe is problematic for trying to make sense of the universe. Yeah. So when we, you know, our, our, our single greatest treasure trove of data that we use to reconstruct our universe in its history is a cosmic microwave background. And when we look at that light, what we do is we basically deduce by measuring it, how many patches of a certain size there are, Hot, and by patches, I mean hot or cold spots, and how many there are of different sizes, bigger sizes, bigger sizes. And um, if you get big enough, um, there just aren't many places on that background to look. So let's say I wanted to look for patches in the sky that were like 90 degrees across. Well, there are only a handful of places those patches could be. So this particular um, piece of sky that we have the ability to look at doesn't give us much information about that. And as these telescopes have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and, or more powerful, I should say, um, and more, more precise, they've been able to fully extract all the information that the cosmic background has out to greater and greater angular scales, smaller and smaller angular scales. And we're reaching a point now, which at least in terms of the temperature variations in the cosmic background, we're more or less done in the sense that we've measured everything there is to extract in that body of, of would-be data. Measuring it better won't teach us more about the universe. Now, if we could go to some other place, um, you know, many billions of light years away and study the cosmic microwave background there, you'd get a whole new set of data and you can combine that with ours and make progress. But there's just no practical way to do that. 
So um, – and the word for this is that we're cosmic variance limited. Uh, we basically used up all the data the universe is going to provide. So when I, I think the, the, the line you quoted from the book is the problem with cosmology is we only have one universe to study or to measure or observe, and that's the case here. So what do you do? Well, you find new ways to measure things. Like instead of just a cosmic microwave background, you might look at the uh, what we call the 21 centimeter emission that you get from not just one point in cosmic history, but from all of the subsequent points in cosmic history. And that will give, us, give you a lot more information, a lot more than we currently have to work with. Um, and then you try to think of new clever ways uh, to, to go beyond uh, the sort of uh, observational tools we've worked with. And I, I imagine someday we'll find new ways to do it, maybe using things like gravitational waves or polarization of the cosmic background or a bunch of other uh, observational probes that haven't quite hit their heyday yet but are just kind of starting to get exciting. Yeah, I think I think the only other option we'll have is, and nobody's really excited about this option, is that if you waited long enough, you would be <laughs> able to see those fluctuation patterns in the cosmic back microwave background change. And perhaps since we started doing these experiments and making these observations in the 90s, if we learn how to make these observations to enough significant digits, perhaps someday down the line, we could actually start to detect those changes, just like within the next couple of decades, we expect to be able to actually start to detect how the expansion rate of the universe is changing as we watch these ultra-distant galaxies and quasars start to actually recede from us faster and faster as the distance between us and them evolves in the universe. I'm not optimistic about this being a in Ethan and Dan's lifetime sort of yeah. experiment that might occur, but... But in that sense, if you're willing to wait, the changes in the universe can help you approach this problem as though you had more than one universe to look at. So here's a question. Do you think that will happen first or will we discover the, t the temperature anisotropies in the cosmic neutrino background first? Oh, boy. Um you know, a little here, this but. is this is really fun because I I have never been put on the spot like this by someone who's a guest on my podcast before, <laughs> and this is that. this is great because cosmic neutrinos, um, they are something that we've actually been able to indirectly detect, be but because they're such at low temperature and they're so. Their cross-section at these low energies are so small that we are so many orders of magnitude away from detecting them. So I guess my answer is going to be at least I can theoretically design experiments with infinite technology that could do either one. If I wanted yeah. to take an enormous neutrino detector, which is a giant tank of water covered in photo detectors, if I could accelerate that detector close enough to the speed of light, then it could make those cosmic background neutrinos relativistic, and I'd be able to do that. I'd be able to actually start forcing interactions with them and seeing, aha, here we go. Now I can start measuring these neutrinos. The problem is I'd only be getting the neutrinos within our own galaxy the ones that have fallen in at late times. So I'd have to start reaching out to different points in the universe. So if that's the question of the anisotropies in the cosmic neutrino background versus seeing the cosmic microwave background change, I think, you know, if we can get those extra significant digits, if we can cool our electronics down to get below that noise floor, even if that requires going down to femto degrees or atto degrees, which for those of you who don't study laser cooling of atoms, this is many orders of magnitude past where we've managed to go. Um, I still think that's a better possibility than trying to get outside of our galaxy to interact with the neutrinos that come to us from across the universe. If neutrinos didn't have mass, I might give you a different answer, but the fact that they do have mass and have fallen, therefore, into galactic halos, I don't see how we're going to do that before we get the capability of anisotropies in the CMB. But your answer and mileage may vary depending on your predictions of the future. 
They both seem really, really hard. They do. They do. This is not, like I said, this is not 21st century science. I think we're we're thinking about 30th century science here in the 21st century, <laughs> assuming that things go pretty good for humanity. I want to encourage everyone, if you are interested in physics, cosmology, the universe, to pick up a copy of Dan Hooper's At the Edge of Time. This book came out in November of this year, 2019, and will make a great Christmas gift for anyone who's interested in thinking about the big questions, the earliest times, and getting a coherent picture of the universe out of it. I like Dan's writing style, and I bet you will too. Before I let you go, Dan, are there any final thoughts you'd like to live the listeners of the Starts With a Buying podcast with? Yeah, just that on the one hand, it's amazing that we've sorted out to a pretty high degree of precision how our universe has evolved from the first second or so to the present state. But the open questions in that first second or first fraction of a second are profound and uh, and rich and diverse. It would shock me if 20 or 30 years from now, we are we, the, the cosmology textbooks describe that first fraction of a second in the same way they do now. I think there's a lot of opportunity, uh, even probability of revolution and radical revising of how we think about the early universe. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I'm so excited to be talking to people about it. Well, that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, you, you heard it here first. Dan Hooper's prediction is that our theory of inflation as we have it today is a placeholder for something perhaps more fundamental, perhaps much better known that we might be encountering in in the next few decades. And I... I would very much like it if that was the case. I might not be as high on that possibility as Dan is, but this is why we have diversity of thought in theoretical physics and in everything we do. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah. And to all of you out there, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible thanks to the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Cliff Elgin, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Jeffrey David Maricini, Robert J. Hansen, Peter Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Mark Armstrong, Jose Henrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcik, Danny, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Rich Weigel, Christoph Hip, William Hogg, Rushin Shah, Alan Parik, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Chris Jukutas, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Fierre Franson, Dick Pills, Hannah Khan, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I'll see you here next time for more Starts with a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>